The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. This morning's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It is on page 520 of those hard black, or hardback black Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, uh, please take one of those home with you as a gift from Park Church. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Good morning. How's everybody doing? That was very underwhelming. That's fine. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We're so excited you all have joined us uh, today. Uh, we are in our fall series in Ecclesiastes, so we've made our way through the first four chapters. Eight more chapters to go. We're starting the fifth one today, as we just read. Um, and really, the, the preacher, or the writer of Ecclesiastes is describing life kind of from a street level, from the ground level, life as it really is and not just merely as we wish it was. And we've, we kind of uh, are taken along with him as he kind of looks at life uh, for all of its vaporness. It's described as hevel, elusive, frustratingly hard to grasp. And as we seek for life and pleasure and accomplishments and wisdom and all these other places, uh, we find ourselves very um, frustrated. And uh, as, we, as we work our way through the book, we realize that life dishes out its, its fair, shame, uh, fair share of, of pain, but also joys. And he's like, man, enjoy it as it comes, as you're able. Um, and then one day you're gonna die and be forgotten. So that's where we are uh, at this point in Ecclesiastes. So welcome to Park Church, everyone. It's a good day. Um, but uh, I, think, I think what I want to mention about chapter 5 is there's suddenly a, a shift in tone. Uh, up to this point, the preacher, or what's known as the assembler, uh, has largely been sharing observations from the ground level. It's almost like he's opening up his exploratory diary with us and kind of going page by page saying, you know what, I tried this for a while, I observed this, and this didn't really work out. It was still hevel, it was still vapor, it was hard to grasp. And then I, he flips the page and he kind of walks through, I observed this, I observed this. And he's, and he's sharing observations, he's sharing descriptions of what he's found along the way as he's discovered all these different things And yet here in chapter 5, suddenly he turns from description to exhortation. He begins to exhort the listeners. He moves from saying, I observe this, to this is what you should do right now. He's calling out to those under the sun to do particular things. And what's he calling us 
to do? What's the focus of the assembler's speech? It's actually all about what we're doing here and now. The assembler is speaking about the assembly of God's people. And in a very real way, this message could be entitled Church Under the Sun or Worship Under the Sun. What happens when the people of God gather under the sun and for what purpose? What sorts of expectations should we have as we gather together? How should we show up? And so I'd love just to pray, start our time by praying, asking God to meet us. I believe that um, God has something for each of us here today. So I'd love just to pray together with you all. God who's above the heaven, now we lift our eyes to you and we ask that you would speak to us. Uh, speak to us in our joys. Speak to us in our pains. Uh, speak to us where we really are uh, right now. And I pray that you would speak to us particularly about how we are to gather before you. Uh, would you meet us in power? Would you reveal yourself to us? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was uh, preparing for this, this time, studying the passage, trying to figure out the best way to approach uh, and work our way through it, uh, it does seem like there are two clear halves to this passage. Uh, it follows like a similar, like parallel, like two segments, like an ABC literary structure. Like A would be the positive statement, like do this, followed by a negative one, that's the B one. Don't do this. And then C, it kind of closes off a section with a parable or a proverb of sorts. And then it repeats itself Again, and in kind of in the spirit of the passage, we're told to let our words be few before God. So I want to try to let my points be few today as we uh, preach. I want to um, say that each of these points are an invitation that God would give to us that would powerfully impact actually how we come to our corporate times of worship, as well as how we live our lives outside of these times. And, and I also want to mention this that um, the second and third points are directly tied and flow out of the first point. So if you want to distract yourself at all during this time, don't lose it on this first point because the, the, second, the second points that come from this really do flow from this first one. Um, first point is this, and it's this. As you come to gather under the sun, come prepared, uh, come with prepared hearts before a holy God. Come with prepared hearts before a holy God. Let's look at the first sentence in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. It's an interesting command, is it not? Uh, this could be translated, watch your feet or watch your step. Uh, this verse has hints or echoes of Moses being told by God when he came uh, close to the burning bush to take off his shoes because he is standing on what? Holy ground. Well, was there something special about that sand or was there something special about the person of whom Moses was in their presence. And that's precisely what it was. We gather, as we gather before God, we gather before this God who is holy. Now, often in Western Christianity, we've so befriended God that we've lost sight of God's holiness. The word holy means cut off or set apart or different or otherly. Uh, holiness isn't necessarily an attribute of God, but it is telling us that everything God is, He is fully and completely and perfectly. He's set apart in all of that he is in his love, in his justice, in his mercy, in his grace, in his kindness. All that God is, he is perfect. He is set apart. He is holy. As we sang today, and as, as Isaiah 6 points out, God is so holy that the seraphim say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. Different, different, different. Other, other, other. This is our God. I think sadly we can kind of come into our times, get our coffee, and just kind of saunter our way over to the pews and just sip, sip on our coffee 
as we mumble under our breath, common, common, common. We just kind of want to make our way through this service and then go out to lunch after, right? And that's not the invitation of the scriptures. It's to guard our steps when we go to the house of God because God is a holy God and we need to learn to prepare our hearts before him. If you've ever been to London, you know they have these little signs when you're riding on the subway or the tube, right? And they say, mind the gap. Mind the gap. What does that mean? It says, pay attention to the space between the platform and the subway car, right? So here's the platform, and then there's a little gap right there, and then you step into the subway car or off of the subway car onto the platform. Mind the gap. And I think that's really what the preacher's trying to get us to do. He's saying, hey, as you gather with God, mind the gap. Wake up to what you're about to walk into. The preacher's asking, how are you personally showing up? Where is your heart? You see, how you gather matters. Your heart posture is essential. Some of you might be saying, well, isn't God like warm? Isn't he friendly? You know, well, absolutely yes. But I want to say this. As we've seen in this passage and throughout the whole of the scriptures of this holy God, God's welcome mat comes with a warning sign. God's welcome mat comes with a warning sign. Mind the gap. God is holy. This is no ordinary house. This is the house of God, and God is holy. Uh, C.S. Lewis captures this reality well in his book, The Silver Chair, as he shares about an interaction between Aslan and Jill, and I want to put it up on the screen and read through it with you all. Here's uh, Aslan speaking with Jill. Are you, not, uh, are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered, this is, uh, this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless book, bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream for us, brothers and sisters. There is no other house under the sun that can truly be a home for us. God is holy and yet he is also our home. This is both inviting and terrifying for us because he's not like us, but he invites us to draw near, to guard our steps as we come before him. Second point. Come with open ears before a speaking God. Come with open ears before a speaking God. So let's read this next passage together, verses 1 through 3. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. It's amazing, this God who is high and who's holy speaks. This passage zeroes in on our ears and our mouths. We're told it's better to listen than to go through the motions as we offer the sacrifice 
of fools. Not only are we told that it's foolish, but also it's evil. We associate evil with, with, with what's happening out there, but interestingly, God, the holy God, breaks the news to churchgoers that there's plenty of evil going on in the four walls of the church every Sunday. Some of us are coming in trying to impress God and others with our words, while in fact God is trying to get us to be impressed with who he is. We're coming into the church building, filming ourselves, singing our songs and singing our words while taking selfies and God's wondering if we put our phones down and look at him for a moment. It's like we're coming into a gym, standing in front of our mirrors, rolling up our sleeves, lifting our dumbbells, and we're like, man, I look really good right now. Dang, I mean, my biceps look fire right now, you know? And all of a sudden, like, man, God must be really impressed with this workout right now. And God's like, put your five-pound dumbbells down <laughs> and look at me. Look at me. I'm not impressed with your words. I'm not impressed with your workout. Look at me. Listen to me. And so our first order of business as we gather is what God has to say to us and not what we have to say for him. It's what God has to do for us, not what we have to do for God. And that's why we start our call to worship with the word of God, not our words declaring how faithful we are to him. We start our times of worship here at Park saying, this is the God that we serve. Part of me wishes that we could uh, give out uh, duct tape to our uh, greeting team out on the stairwell out there and just handing out pieces of duct tape. While we're coming in, we're just like slapping duct tape on our mouths. Boom. Boom. Imagine a congregation full of people with duct tape over their mouths saying, we are here first and foremost to listen, to listen to God, not us declaring our faithfulness to you, but you, God, speaking your faithfulness to what? What, what might God have to say to us? I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. It says this, prayer is answering speech. The first word is God's word. Prayer is a human word and is never the initiating and shaping word simply because we are never first, never primary. Have you ever gone to a conference? There's a Q&A, there's a speaker there that you're so pumped to listen to and they've got a little mic and they hand it around, people asking questions to the speaker. Has there ever been someone in the audience who suddenly decided that the, everyone in the, con in, in the audience there would be so blessed by what they have to say instead of the person up on the stage speaking, right? And they're like, man, I just have some thoughts I just want to share with everybody. And you're like, please, just shut your mouth and hand, you know, hand the mic back to somebody else. Like, let the person speak. And often, I think, sometimes we come in our times like saying, man, we're just, you know, we want to spout our mouths and just declare how amazing we are. And yet God is the guest of honor. It's his voice, first and foremost, that we want to hear. In the, in, the, in the Bible, we see a pattern of engagement. God revealing and us responding. God revealing and us responding. Revelation and response. Revelation and response. That's the rhythm. God's calling us in our times with him to be rash, not with our speaking, but with our listening. Be quick to listen as you gather. I love this quote from David Gibson. It says this, the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need someone to tell us to listen because we want to look and speak more than we want to listen. Ecclesiastes is one long meditation on the need to use our ears for God's word alongside our eyes in God's world. That first line, the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. As good, you know, evangelicals, Protestants, we think, you know, we're, we're declaring the mouth is our primary sense organ. And yet, first and foremost, we must Listen to God. 
We are first and foremost learners. Learners always listen. The sign of someone who stopped learning is what? They talk all the time. They don't think they have anything else to learn. We forever want to be learners and listeners before God and before others. To be clear, the preacher isn't saying, don't speak ever, never take the tape off your mouth. He's saying, all right, take the tape off, pray, praise, ask, cast your cares on God, pour out your heart before him. But mainly the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to keep us from thinking that somehow we are impressing God with our words, with our big words, and somehow gaining something by going through those motions. Fools come to talk on Sundays, the wise will come to listen and learn. Imagine for a moment, each of us coming together here and our first order of business is to listen. What might the service look like? It does seem like the early church was this sort of church that came first to listen to God. In 1 Corinthians, we say, we see that the people of God would come together and God gives them the gift of his Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and that the church is built up by these gifts as we listen to God and as we receive his gifts, we in turn respond and we share these encouragements with others and the church is built up. What might God speak to us throughout the service in our songs, in his word, at communion, before and after the service? There's one person from our congregation who said, man, I, every time I come to a service, I'm asking God to speak uh, to me about one person that I can encourage. So they come and they're like, I just want to encourage one person. And so they come as a listener and they say, God, how might you want me to build up one person here. Imagine if all of us did that. We have one encouragement for someone in this room saying, hey, I just want to encourage you. This is what I was reminded of. I don't know you, but, you know, or maybe you do know somebody. You want to encourage them. What might a service like that look like? What would our gospel communities look like if we showed up as listeners and said, God, encourage others through me? And it starts with our ears, not with our mouths. This passage gives us one of the reasons for our listening. Uh, at the end of verse 2, it says, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. It's a very similar point to how we started, to mind the gap. God is set apart. Our intention in listening is to remember he's always primary. He's the initiator. He is the great gift giver, not us. God is in the heights of heavens. He's in the highest of heavens. We're on earth. Do you really think that you're impressing him? He knows everything. Let your words be few. Let your listening be much section closes out uh, in verse uh, 3. It says this, For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Uh, this meaning is a little bit tricky. Uh, commentators argue about some of the semantics and how it plays out, but at the heart of it, it's connecting to the prior two verses. The noisiness, the chatter of fools with the lack of reality of their dreams coming to pass. This parable is saying, Slow your mouth down, slow your life down, your desire to assert yourself as impressive through all your frenetic activity under the sun, and open your ears to a God who speaks. God has something to say, and it's worth your while to listen. Third and final invitation come with responsive lives before a faithful God. Come with responsive lives before a faithful God. Let's read these final four verses together. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And so from the prior point, as God speaks, we respond with both words, but also lives, words and lives that are married together. We don't merely offer lip service to God, but also whole lives that follow him in response to all that he's spoken to us. Now, admittedly, this passage might be a little bit confusing for us. In the Old Testament, temple vows were a thing. We don't have much like this in the church today. People would come into worship, and in the process, they would promise via a sacrifice or money in exchange for God granting a request for them. You can read all about it in Leviticus 27. The priest would actually have a list of these vows kind of on, on paper, and then they would apparently send out a messenger as a collection agent. Right, so it sounds like when it was time to pay up and do right on their end of things, these collectors would show up and be like, hey, you remember that thing you promised? You know, it's time. And they're like, oh, my bad. It was, it was a mistake. I kind of said I was in the heat of the moment. That worship song was fire, and I just was declaring things to God. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I actually can't do that now. And they're like, oh, okay, oh, all right, that's fine. Their lives didn't follow suit with their words. They couldn't be trusted. Their words didn't mean much in the end. The irony about these is that God was never in need. He wasn't like in the temple being like, hey, uh, how much did those collectors bring back? Uh, are, we, are we in the positive now? Are we good? That wasn't ever the point. These vows were voluntary, which is why the preacher says it's better that you don't make the vow at all than to like make a vow in the moment and not follow through on it. Some of them were using vows as an attempt to control or coerce or manipulate God, which for the record never works out well in the end. It's not a good, good choice, right? Whatever was motivating their vow, there wasn't a life that was backing it or even the intention to follow through. There's much thunder in their mouths, but there's little lightning in their hands. Do you feel that way in worship? You declare things before God, but then at the end of the day, you're like, man, I can't follow through. I want to say this, that God's not impressed by big words, but small lives. In fact, he's, we learned that he's angry about it, right? And, and again, the anger isn't just some like Old Testament God thing. God is the same today. God's anger is motivated not by hatred, but by deep and passionate love. Do you know that the God's anger is motivated by deep love? If you find a cold God, you will find a loveless and non-angry God as well. God disciplines the ones that he loves. And as the judge, he brings righteous judgment. That's who God is. He longs to see a people who do what they say. If one of my daughters comes to me and says, Dad, if you do this for me, I will do this. If she doesn't do it, it's not like I needed the thing in the first time. I'm like, man, follow through with your word. Follow through with what you said you were going to do. I want to teach her to follow through and live an integrated, undivided life. It's about being a people of our word who can be trusted. I think if you notice Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, don't take these oaths over here. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. James chapter 5, verse 12 says this, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, this is in the New Testament. This inconsistency in our words and our lives is a human issue, and all of us struggle with it. The amazing thing for us today is that God is never fickle in his promise keeping. His words and his response are always one and the same. He's forever faithful. He's, he's, he's not often faithful. He's not sometimes faithful. His yes is always 100% yes. We can bank and rely on him. Every work that God starts, he completes. He's on a streak that's lasted for eternity. 
One of the things that's at stake when we don't follow through on our word is that ultimately we begin to misrepresent what God is like because he's this undivided, perfect God who always follows through. The section closes out with another parable, verse 7. It's a final instruction, and it says this, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, or there's hevel, there's vapor. But God is the one you must fear. What's this about? It's very similar to the last parable, but it's, it's a bit tricky. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message. He says this, But against all illusion, and getting, so that's getting at that, that vapor idea, and fantasy and empty talk, there's always this rock foundation. Fear God. I want to repeat that. Against all illusion and fantasy and empty talk, there's always this rock foundation. Fear God. In a vapor world, there's something steady and there's something substantive, and it's God himself. As the ESV words it, God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. What a way to close this passage out. Uh, the preacher is saying the antidote to all of our foolish, sinful, half-hearted, half-listening, self-focused worship is a simple but profound command. Fear God. In fact, it summarizes the whole passage. If we truly feared God, we would let our words be few and we would follow through with the very things that we say to God. Biblical fear isn't some unhealthy fear of God, always kind of nervous and jittery around him, wondering if he's going to lash out. Rather, it's reverential awe and respect for him. Some translations actually say it this exact way, stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of God, not in awe of ourselves, not on our words, not on our faithfulness and our promises to God, but stand in awe of God himself. Live as those who regularly take their shoes off in the presence of a holy God. Those who mind the gap, those who listen and long for God to speak, and those who follow through in their commitments to God and to others. How do we cultivate this kind of life? I just want to end with two closing thoughts of application. And it's this, first one, is in order to make it under this, in, in order to make it in this under the sun world, uh, we need regular rhythms of gathering with God's people. I want to repeat this again. In order to make it in this under the sun world, in this difficult world, we need regular rhythms of gathering with God's people. I want to point out in verse one, if you can look back to verse one, guard your steps, what's that next word? When you go to the house of God. When you go to the house of God. There's an assumption of some form of gathering in this person's life. It doesn't say if. This is similar to Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray or when you fast or when you give. For as disorienting as, as this life under the sun is and for as broken as the church may be, there's something so powerful in anchoring and centering that this rhythm of gathering together in the house of God with others is I think this reality is true for all of us. We're tempted to listen to a thousand other voices and give ourselves over to a million other things during the week. It's this gathering, and it's in our time in small groups, as gospel communities, and we're with friends who can encourage us in our faith that we're encouraged to fight, to listen, and obey God, even when it's tough. It's here every week that we hold up our cares before the God who's above the sun. And I think this rhythm brings sanity to the insanity of our lives. We're stabilized. It doesn't solve our problems, but at least it situates us and orients us in the madness. So I want to encourage each of you, prioritize this time. Prioritize this time 
Second closing thought. Um, we worship a God who actually knows personally what this under the sun life is really like. Many rulers are, 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 you know, God is in heaven and you are on earth, right? God, what does God really know about what I'm walking through, about my temptations, about my challenge, about my tears, about my pain, about my sorrow? Like, man, have you read the gospel story? God knows everything about our story. God sent his only son to leave the comforts of heaven, to leave this reality of God is in heaven, and he joined us under the sun. We have a Savior who's able to sympathize with us because he knows what life is like firsthand. There's nothing that we could tell him that would surprise him. He knows personally. Jesus didn't mind the gap. He flipped the script and he came to us knowing that we couldn't come to him. He knew we needed saving, so he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. As we come to him in worship, we're not bringing our sacrifices, trying to impress him or convince him of anything, but rather we're coming saying, Jesus, I am putting my trust in your sacrifice for me, your once and for all sacrifice. This is an amazing thing. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. He's holy. He's perfect. Do you want to know what God sounds like? John tells us that Jesus is the word of God. Do you want to know the faithfulness of God? Look to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of God's promises to us. He's the yes and amen to every one of God's promises to us. And so as we gather, we gather to behold him, to stand in awe of him, to listen to him. And not only that, to also follow him, saying, God, help me shrink this gap between my words and my life. I want to be this person that images you to those around me. I want my yes to be yes. I want my, my no to be no. And then in turn, keep gathering with others who do the same until he returns. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you are holy, holy, holy. And uh, we are so quick to not listen, to not look, to not ask you to speak to us. And so I, I pray right now, just even in this moment, that we would... Slow our minds down, slow our hearts down, um, slow just whatever we're thinking about that's coming after this time. And, and I, I'm, I'm asking that you would speak to us. Um, it would be silly for us to miss a moment to listen to you right now. And so just right now, uh, I, I want to give us a, a couple minutes right now just to slow down and actually try to put into practice what we've read. It's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And we want to listen right now. And so just take a moment to be still. And I want to encourage you, ask this holy God to speak to you. Uh, you might have come in here believing in Jesus, loving Jesus. Some of you might not know what you believe. I encourage you to open your heart to this God and ask him to speak to you today. And let's just be silent before this God who loves to speak to us, who loves to sing over us, who delights in us through his son. But let's just listen to him for a moment.
Thank you for your presence here with us. Uh, We want to get better at listening. We confess that we are not great at listening. And we want to be a people who do. Uh, We want to be a people who respond to you, who live full lives. uh, And wherever you've placed us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, uh, we want to be those kind of people. But we need to meet with you first and foremost. So, holy God, would you continue to reveal to us who you are, who we are. Would we be the people who who have unclogged ears, open ears, undistracted ears, and hearts that follow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite the band up, who's already up. That was really fast. As well as those serving communion uh, to come on up. Uh, We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, It's at this table that we remember that while life under the sun uh, can be completely insane, uh, we find some sanity here at this table. Uh, It's at this table that we remember uh, Jesus laying down his life for us. We celebrate who he is, what he's done through his broken body, through his shed blood. Uh, I want to encourage you, sometimes we can get in a rut during communion. We're kind of just, okay, I'm standing in line, take the bread off, dip it, okay. Body of Christ broken for me, blood of Christ shed for me, you know, thanks be to God. Um, I want to encourage you, as you're standing in line to take uh, communion, to ask God uh, to reawaken an awe for him, a fear for him even, uh, that you might see that he's holy, that he's perfect, and also that he's a God that speaks, saying, God, I want to live in communion with you. And, and, and God loves to answer these prayers. Uh, he, he wants to do this, but I want to encourage you to talk to him. You don't need to impress him. You don't need to coerce him. Just simply ask him, to reawaken awe so that as you gather uh, on Sundays, but also during the week with your gospel communities, imagine a life that listens on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, throughout the day on Monday, and, and all throughout each day of the week. Imagine a listening people who walk with God, who know Him, who hear Him, who speak out what they hear. It changes everything. It's people whose words aren't far from their lives, we're undivided before God. We're pure-hearted. Uh, and that's the sort of people we want to be, but we want to rely on Jesus for those things. So we celebrate that at the table. If you don't yet follow Jesus and you're here today, we want to say thank you for being here. Uh, if you have any questions, we'd love to talk about those things with you. Uh, however we can join you on your journey of faith, we'd love to chat through who we believe Jesus to be and how he meets you, where you actually are. Um, Before uh, we do take communion, I'd invite you to stand if you're able. And I want to read this prayer together. We've been reading throughout the whole series. Please read this with me. Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways. Even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others would be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.